0: You see it? counselor. Thank you. Different company. I don't know, is that battery good? He, he pivoted to do, just this week, He just got a job oh, okay. to do, do an alarm, yeah. Perfect, okay, that's It's actually in the same building as never met him, but I got a call from his son. Have you ever met him? Okay. So he works at an HR firm uh, there at uh, Aurelia. It's like their company, a bunch of restaurants. But, uh, so uh, when I was there, he, he wants, I do, I can do group, I do a little group, uh, although I do mostly individually, but he wanted to just put me on the list. Tried the place and we plate. have raised a thousand voices uh, Just to lift your perfect. holy
1: name And we will raise thousands yeah, yeah. more ah, to sing yeah. Of your beauty Capital. in Capital. this place yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. When none can you live in fathom No, not one defined.
2: Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome to Faith Bible Church this morning. It's good to have all of you uh, here together. It's good to have those of you joining us online with us uh, as well. I first want to recognize and thank a group of people in our church. I want to thank our praise and worship team. Uh, This is, yeah, please clap for them. This is uh, the 50th week here at Faith Bible that we've been without a pastor of worship Uh, but you all have not missed a beat, and that is an intentional pun, by the way. Uh, Thank you. A little late. We'll get it in the second service, though. We'll nail it. But seriously, it's been a joy to have you guys lead us, uh, and we are very excited for you to serve alongside Joel Mott, who will be uh, joining us next week. But we're excited to have you alongside him next week and in the weeks to come and in the years to come. Uh, Joel arrives to our church on Tuesday. He'll begin uh, time in his office uh, on Tuesday. And then next Sunday, he'll be leading us in worship. And we'll be praying for him uh, a little bit later on in the service. But again, thank you guys. You're a blessing. Uh, a couple of other important announcements. First of all, Wednesday night programming has resumed. So this last Wednesday, we had a WANA re- registration Uh, We had a student ministry back to school bash. We had an introductory uh, lesson to a study of the book of Colossians that I am leading. Uh, But that continues on in the weeks to come. So if you weren't able to register for Iwana, talk to Connie, uh, get on board with that. If you're a student and want to be in a small group, come Wednesday night, get involved with that. Uh, If you're an adult and want to be involved in our Bible study, man, I'd love to have you. Uh, It's going to be a fun study uh, this fall in the book of Colossians. Second thing is on behalf of the elders and staff, I want to tell you guys that you are a joy to lead. Uh, The pandemic and everything that has gone along with it has been challenging for all of us, uh, but you have been joyous and generous and understanding through all of it. And so we are very blessed to serve this church family, and I just wanted you to know that uh, this morning. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to read a psalm as our call to worship, or at least part of a psalm. This is Psalm 148. Just concentrate on these words for a moment. The psalmist says, "'Praise the Lord.'" Praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women alike, old and young together, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above heaven and earth. Stand with me. Let's praise the Lord together.
1: ¡Yo!
4: It's great to see everyone here this morning. We appreciate you being here with us here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, your presence means a great deal to us. Uh, those of you who are here in person, and uh, certainly those of you who are watching online as well, thank you for uh, being with us on this Lord's Day. Um, I too want to uh, reiterate Jay's uh, thanks for our, our band and just for their wonderful service over these uh, many weeks. And uh, we're excited because next Sunday, uh, something we waited for for a long time is happening. Joel Mott will be here, our new worship pastor. And uh, we're very excited about that. It's uh, been a long time coming, but I think it's been worth the And so, we're very excited to have Joel and his family with us, uh, joining us next week. And uh, really, as Joel and his family uh, come here. Um, I really just have one request of our, of our church family, and that is if you all will just be as good to him and his family as you've been to me and my family. it's <laughs> really all I ask. Um, if you all do that for him, he'll love his days here, and he'll be deeply satisfied. So, uh, let's welcome uh, Joel and his family with open arms and open hearts next week as he comes uh, to lead us in worship. Well, before we open God's Word this morning, let me lead us in prayer as we commit ourselves to the Lord this morning. Father, we come before You this morning and we recognize Your Your greatness and Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace to us that You've lavished upon us through Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. Father, we will praise You forever for Your work that You've done in each of our hearts and our lives. And we want to praise You this morning uh, Father, I thank You for Faith Bible Church and all that You've done here over the years, how You've uh, sustained us and strengthened us and kept us faithful to You and to Your Word. And Father, we look forward to Joel Mott joining our, our, our ministry team here this next week, he and his wife Lori. Uh, Lord, we pray for the sale of their home down in Houston. Uh, we pray their family will be able to get here and get uh, settled in uh, very soon and uh, that this will, will become a, a real home to them for their family and for ministry. We pray that Joel will be a great blessing to us and that we can be a great blessing to him as well and to his family in these coming days. Now, Fathers, we prepare to open your Word together. We remember the prayer of Jesus who said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. So that's our prayer this morning. Father, sanctify us in and through uh, your inspired Word this morning. We commit ourselves to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, thank you for being here with us this morning, for visiting with us. We're especially glad you're here and you've come at a good time because uh, just last Sunday we started a new book study here, a new book series, an exposition of the book of Daniel. Uh, we've titled this series, The End Time and the Meantime, And uh, we've, we've posted extensive notes online to supplement your study. So um, if you want to get online and look at those, I think you'll find that to be very helpful. Our text this morning is uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 21, a pretty large section here, but it's kind of one story. So I want to go ahead and read these verses for us this morning. It's a longer section, but to get this before us. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every brand of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court." And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Israel were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then he would make me forfeit my head uh, to the king." Then Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, and the appearance of the ewes who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days." And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the ewes who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food, and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for those four ewes, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. God, Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams." Then at the end of those days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all the realm." And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Oh, may the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Uh, Studdard Kennedy was a chaplain uh, during uh, World War I, and his role often uh, thrust him into danger in the front lines of battle. And uh, one day while traveling through war-ravaged France, he wrote this letter to his young son. He says the first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not keep daddy safe but god make daddy brave and if he has hard things to do make him strong to do them life and death don't matter right and wrong do dead daddy dead is daddy still but daddy dishonored before god is something awful too bad for words I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about the safety, too old chap, and mother would. We'll put it in, but afterwards, always afterwards, because it doesn't really matter near so much. Now, that's powerful, especially powerful, I think, in our days of cascading compromise and conformity. Stuttered Kennedy would rather die an honorable death than live a dishonorable life. He would rather risk his life than defile himself. He'd literally rather be killed and to, to compromise his life and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the attitude, that's the kind of steel in our spine that you and I need today in our culture of snowballing secularism that surrounds us and threatens every day more and more to squeeze us into its mold. And never before, like never before, you and I must in these days live out the courage of our convictions. We need courage, and we need clarity, and we need conviction. Um, in these days. And there's no better example for us of that uh, than Daniel. I'm in the midst of a secular pagan culture over a period of seven decades. Daniel stood and remained unbowed and unbroken in his commitment uh, to God. Uh, I know some time back I gave you all this quote about Hudson Taylor, uh, the founder of the China Inland Mission, a great missionary to China. And one of his friends once said about Hudson Taylor, his is a life worth looking into. And the same is true of Daniel. Daniel's life is a life that's worth looking into. And that's what we plan to do here um, over uh, the next uh, coming weeks and months. But the main message or the key thought or the thrust of our passage this morning is really very simple. The key to a life of lasting impact and influence for the Lord is is living wisely, is wisely living out the courage of our convictions, leaving the consequences to God. If you want to have a life of lasting influence and impact, you have to wisely live out the courage of your convictions. We have to be willing to trust God um, with the consequences. So I want to unpack this thought under four points this morning, the deportation, the decision, the demonstration, and then finally we'll end in verse 21, that last verse, with the duration. But we start here this morning with uh, the deportation. Now, we started last week in verses 1 and 2, and we saw that Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, 605 B.C., comes and uh, overtakes Judah and makes Jehoiakim, who's the king there, um, his vassal. Um, He's a puppet in his place. And he goes back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar does, and along with him, he orders Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. And uh, so I've got a few slides here that I want to show just about uh, Babylon, if I can get those up there. Um, there was three waves of the Babylonian captivity. I mentioned this last time. By the way, Daniel's probably born about 620 BC, maybe 622, somewhere right in there. And then 605 is the first one of these deportations. Daniel and his friends are deported. Probably about 50 to 75 youths were taken. So, this isn't a mass exodus. It's it's a small group that's taken. But then later in 597 B.C., um, the Jews revolt against Babylon. 10,000 Jews are deported then. Ezekiel is among that group. And then finally in 586, they revolt again. The, ba- the Babylonians come, Jerusalem's destroyed, and many of the remaining Jews um, are deported during that time. Um, but go, go ahead and show those next couple of slides. I just got a couple of pictures here of, uh, of, of the city of Babylon, how impressive it was. Now this is an a, a uh, a, a, a artist's uh, rendition of the Ishtar Gate in the city of Babylon, but I've got a couple more slides here that show the Ishtar Gate up close. Uh, This is one of the favorite things I've ever seen in my life. I'd wanted to see this all my life. And a few years ago in Berlin, went to the Pergamon Museum. You couldn't go see it for years because it was East Berlin, but it's all open now. But that's the gate that stood there in Babylon. They took it apart and brought it to Berlin. And then there's one more uh, picture of that there. And you can see it's, you know, some 40, it's 40-something feet, four stories tall. This actually wasn't built till about 30 years after Daniel and his friends get there. But it just shows something of what remains of the grandeur of Babylon. And then one more picture. I thought this was beautiful. This is just someone's idea of what the city of Babylon probably looked like. You know, the Euphrates River running through it. The population's probably about 500,000. But it's the greatest city of that day in the world. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and and removes kind of the cream of the crop from Judah. He always did that with these defeated nations. These young men that are taken are probably uh, somewhere around 14 to 17 years of age. They're politically elite, you can see here. They're physically impressive. They're handsome. Um, kings in that day and monarchs liked good-looking people around them. <laughs> so if you're going to serve in their courts, you had to be good-looking. That's just the way it was. Uh, they were, he wanted people who were intellectually astute, who were a quick study and could learn uh, very quickly. Uh, he wanted people who were socially poised. So this is uh, the A-team, if you will, of the young people from Judah. Fine, physical, mental, and social specimens. Now you say, well, why did Nebuchadnezzar take these hostages? Well, I think one reason is, is it further weakened Judah. I mean, if, the, if you take the, strip away the best future leaders, it kind of weakens them and makes them less likely to revolt. Also, it discouraged rebellion. Uh, by taking away some of the high-ranking political hostages, especially members of the royal family, it made the leaders in Judah less likely to revolt. And finally, it added to the Babylonian brain trust… Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was gathering the best and the brightest from the world of that day and bringing them to Babylon uh, to to rule and to reign and to administrate his his growing kingdom. So, they take these young men and they subject them to a three-year course of of study. You'll notice down in verse 5, they're educated for three years. So, the goal here is a total Babylonian makeover. Uh, You could call this Babylonian brainwashing. (laughs) They want to cut them off from what's familiar. And it's a term of of reprogramming and indoctrination to slowly wean them away from what they've grown up believing from the truth and to turn them uh, to the ways of Babylon. Now, one thing that people often ask here, you may not have noticed this in your translation, but it says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials. The word literally there is the word eunuchs. So, a lot of people wonder if Daniel was a, a true eunuch, and that, that means, did, did, ba, did Nebuchadnezzar take these young Hebrew men and emasculate them? Um, they did that sometimes in the ancient world. Obviously, if they were around the women who were in the harem, then they were safe in that way. But one thing that argues against this is, you remember Potiphar, who Joseph worked for, he was, the, the same Hebrew word here, saras, the word translated eunuch, was used of Potiphar. Now, the fact that Potiphar's wife desired Joseph so much makes some people believe, well, maybe Potiphar really was a eunuch. But uh, we don't know that. It doesn't seem that he was. And so... It's possible Daniel was a true eunuch, but um, I like to think that he and these other men weren't. Maybe it's just my own thinking, but uh, I I like to think maybe that they weren't actually made into true eunuchs. But either way, the goal was to obliterate all memory of Judah and Judah's God and instill in them an allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. Because the Babylonians knew what people know today, and that is if you can change the way somebody thinks, then you can change the way they live. So that was the goal of this. Now, there's three parts here to this Babylonian brainwashing. You'll notice in the end of verse 4, they taught them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they gave them a new language and literature. Now, these captives were immersed in Babylonian thought. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to fill their minds with Babylonian philosophy and astrology and religion. They wanted them to think like Babylonians. I remember… years ago uh, when I started law school. And the very first classes I was in, they would tell us over and over again, our goal these next three years is to make you think like a lawyer. Now, at that time, I thought, well, I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. But they wanted you to think like a lawyer. And and it's a demanding three-year course of learning to get you to think like a lawyer. And I think it's the same thing here. It's a a three-year course to make them think like a Babylonian and live like a Babylonian. So, the language and literature. In verse 5, they give them a new lifestyle, or you could call this new luxury. Notice they, they ate the daily ration of the king's choice food. In other words, I think Nebuchadnezzar's getting them used to living a life of luxury. He's getting them accustomed to the good life. Um, They're they're pampered and well cared for. And this would kind of obligate them and make them feel more dependent on Nebuchadnezzar. So, he was buying their allegiance, if you will, with luxury and and with gifts and with this uh, lavish food. But then finally, in verses 6 and 7, the third part of this curriculum was a new loyalty. He renames them. There's a royal renaming that takes place. And probably there's several reasons for this. One is, it showed Nebuchadnezzar's power over them. I mean, if you can name somebody or name something, then you have power over it. But, but I think even deeper than that was the desire to erase any memory of their God. And you can see that in this uh, chart, the, the Hebrew names, Daniel's God is my judge, Belteshazzar is Bel, protect his life. Bel was another name for Marduk, their main God, kind of also from the name Baal that you often see in the Old Testament. Uh, Hananiah, the Lord shows grace, um, was changed to Shadrach, command of Aku, who is the moon god. A Mishael, who is what God is? Names changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is? And then Azariah, the Lord helps, is changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nego or, 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 or Nebo. It's a, it can be spelled differently. But again, the idea is to erase any memory of their God uh, that's found in their names, to get rid of Yahweh. But Nebuchadnezzar could change their names, but he couldn't change uh, their nature. We're going to see that as we go along through the story. Now, I don't have to tell any of you this morning that we live in a culture that's busy at work to re-educate and reprogram our children and grandchildren. Uh, They're fast at work doing that, trying to to squeeze them and squeeze us into its mold. And this reprogramming and re-education and indoctrination is relentless We live literally in a 21st century Babylon today. We'd better be ready to stand and to live out the courage of our convictions, as we're going to see that Daniel does here. we better be ready. Now, after the deportation and this this re-indoctrination program, we come to the decision. Notice verse 8, now Daniel moves center stage, but Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Now, up to this point, it's interesting. Daniel and his friends show no outward resistance to the assimilation into Babylonian society. Now, they seem to be going along, there's no protest at first. Daniel was willing to study Babylonian literature and science and culture and astrology and even bear a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. But now we see, coming to the surface here, his courage and commitment to God. We see that God's ways take precedence over every other consideration of his life. And it says here in verse 8, Daniel made up his mind. Literally, Daniel set upon his heart Now, it's interesting here, the word that's used there, he set upon his heart, or to set, is used twice in verse 7. You could translate it like this. Let me just give you the flow. In verse 7, the chief of staff set names for them. The end of verse 7, so he set for Daniel Belteshazzar. And then verse 8, now Daniel set it upon his heart. So, you have this overseer of Babylonian assimilation who's setting names for them, but now Daniel has his own setting to do. He sets it upon his heart not to defile himself with the king's uh, allotment. And by the way, let me say this, you and I have some setting that we need to do in our culture as well. There's things that we need to set our heart um, against in this culture. Um, You know the name Jonathan Edwards. Most of you do. Many say he's the greatest theologian ever produced by America, one of the greatest thinkers. Um, his life and and work have have greatly impacted our nation. But uh, in his late teens, he began to write a series of resolutions. He wrote 70 of them. Now, think about this. They were completed prior to his 20th birthday, And here's some of these resolutions. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolved, that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age. Now, that's a pretty good resolution. I'm going to live the way I'd want to live if I lived to be it to an old age. A lot of us wish we'd done that earlier. Resolve never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. However unsuccessful I am in fighting sin, I'm not going to stop. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be an hour before I should hear the last trump. Don't do anything that you wouldn't do if it's an hour before uh, the Lord's going to come back resolutions, see, resolving and setting your heart. And you and I need to make some resolutions as well in our families, our marriages, our businesses, in our church, what we're going to stand for and be resolved to do. Now, one big question here, this is a big question in this passage in some ways, why did Daniel make this decision? What was wrong with this royal food allotment? You can, you can see in your outline there, I've got four views and really, any of these views could be true, and they're all sound, but I want to go through these and mention them quickly. The first view that probably many of you have heard is what's called the dietary view, and that is the food was unclean they would have been eating, or it's off limits. Um, it, was, it was non-kosher. Um, it violated Leviticus chapter 11 and the, the food law there. The, the problem with that view is that doesn't explain why Daniel didn't drink the wine because wine wasn't forbidden in the law. So, Daniel doesn't eat the food, and he doesn't drink the wine. The defiling uncleanness of the food could explain not eating the food, but not uh, his his, uh, hesitation or his desire not to drink the wine. So, because of that, a lot of people reject that view, although it's a common one. A second view is called the demonic view, and that is this food, before it was given to them, would have been offered to idols, which, of course, behind these idols were demonic forces. So people say, well, look, Daniel doesn't want to eat the meat in and, and these things because that was offered to idols, and he'd be participating in that worship. The problem with that view as well is that vegetables and fruit and grain could also be offered to pagan deities as well. So just because he doesn't eat the meat doesn't necessarily get him off the hook there. A third view is called the dependence view, and that is that Eating these things that are only grown from the ground, which, by the way, down in verse 12, where it says they they ate vegetables, the word there literally in the Hebrew means things that are sown or things that have seeds. So it's not just vegetables necessarily, but it would include vegetables, fruit, uh, and grain. But the idea here is is that eating only things grown from the ground would be a reminder to Daniel and his friends that they were dependent ultimately on Yahweh and not on Nebuchadnezzar, that their dependence wasn't on him for this food, but it was ultimately upon Yahweh. The problem for that view for me is that alternate diet would also have come from Nebuchadnezzar as well, so they're still dependent upon him at least in some way. So, one view that's kind of gained traction among some more recent scholars has is, is been often called the defensive view, and that is that Daniel simply draws a line. He doesn't want to fully assimilate, so he resists the creeping seduction and immersion into the culture. In other words, he doesn't want to get swallowed up by this culture. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis has a great commentary on Daniel, and he says it like this. He holds this fourth view. He says, Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. Daniel may well have thought, there's a real danger here. I could get sucked into this. He recognized if Babylon gets into you, the show is over. Hence, he had to draw the line at some point to preserve some distinctiveness, to keep from being totally squeezed into Babylon's mold. And then he quotes another man who says this, it's not so much something in the food that defiles as much as it's the total program of assimilation. At this point, the Babylonian government is exercising control over every aspect of their lives. They have little means to resist the forces of assimilation that are controlling them. They seize one of the few areas where they can still exercise choice as an opportunity to preserve their distinct identity. And that makes sense to me that Daniel believes he has to take a stand, and he decides to take one he can feasibly take. So, he has to draw a line somewhere, a moment of decision's kind of been reached. Uh, Daniel knows that he and his friends are forced to be in Babylon, but they don't want to let Babylon get in them. So every time a meal was served, these young men could remember that while they had no choice to be in Babylon and absorb its culture, they could choose to be distinct from it, at least in some way, and not be totally assimilated into it. And we all know that any walk with God… You're going to sometime end up out of step with the culture, and that's where they find themselves here. We all come to a point where we have to choose to go in the the way of faithfulness and not compromise. It's like Daniel 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Literally, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Daniel and his friends are doing this to retain their distinctiveness. Now think about this. Daniel was not an isolationist. He was capable of interacting with the pagan culture around him uh, without being contaminated by it. But at some point, I think he said, enough is enough. It's kind of like back on April 19, 1775, Captain John Parker was with his men at Lexington. Looking over at the redcoats over there, he says, if they mean to have war, let it begin here. And that's kind of where Daniel is at this point, I think. He takes his stand here in verse 8. And for every one of us, There's gonna be issues specific to our own context where we live. We're we're gonna have to take a stand. And that stand will determine the course of our lives and our future usefulness to God. Now think about this too. Where does true commitment usually begin? It usually begins in small things. It usually begins in private. But if we fail there, we'll never be faithful in the big things out in the public. There's an old saying, and I love this, Great doors swing on small hinges. You ever seen a big massive door and seen these little small hinges? Great lives also swing on small hinges. And Daniel chapter 1 is the small hinge of Daniel's great life. In this chapter, Daniel is building up steam for a life of faithfulness that's going to last almost 90 years. And he passes the test here which gives him strength and and fortitude and courage to face the bigger tests he's going to face later um, in his life. And the same is true for you and for me. Decision by decision, day by day, we build up a reservoir of courage and conviction and commitment that enables us then to face the bigger challenges of life. Now, don't miss verse 9 here, it says, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the side of the commander of the officials. Look, Daniel's resistance is essential, but the success of that resistance depends on God's grace. God undertakes for Daniel, and the focus throughout this chapter is not simply the faithfulness of these four young men to God, but God's faithfulness to them. It was ultimately God's working on their behalf that, that causes them to find mercy. Now, we mentioned earlier that the food here that Daniel wants to eat is sown things, it, it's, it's vegetables, it's fruit, it's grains, and he drank water. Now a lot of people have developed from this what they call the Daniel diet. Uh, back in 2012 in Saddleback Church, uh, they came up with the Daniel plan based on this and had a big uh, diet in their church and so on. Um, other people have the Ezekiel, the Ezekiel diet based on Ezekiel 4-9. There's even some bread out there called the Ezekiel bread. Look, the point of these passages is not to promote a particular health diet. Um, it's not, that's not the point of it. It's not some health food diet. The point of this is it's about taking a stand and living out the courage of our convictions. Now, if you want to have this diet and just eat vegetables and all that, have at it. But I'm having ribeyes and fillets and whatever along the way. So anyway, you know, knock yourself out if you want to do it. There's nothing wrong with it. But that's not the point of this, to give us some special diet we're supposed to eat. Now, we've looked at uh, um, the the background behind this or, or why this happened, why Daniel refused to eat the meat. But let's also talk about how did Daniel make this decision? Where did his resolve come from? And I think the first thing I would say here is probably his parents. It's not stated explicitly in the text, but I think it's implicit. His name is God is my judge. I think he'd been taught by his parents to fear God. Think about this, he'd been raised under the revival under King Josiah, the last godly king in Judah. The last godly king in Judah, Daniel lived about 12 years during his reign, he died in 609. And the move of God's Spirit during that time had a profound impact on Daniel's life, had an impact on his family and his upbringing. And by the way, let me just say this. I, I pray that young people who grow up in our church, that uh, this church and the move of God's Spirit here will have a profound impact on their life as they go forward uh, to live for the Lord. Uh, there's a, a book, I, I've quoted it sometimes uh, to you, but it's by uh, John G. Patton it's about John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the cannibals of the South Seas. Charles Spurgeon called him the king of the cannibals. I mean, it's a, it is a, it's a powerful book. I would re- highly recommend it to any of you uh, who want to read it. But the thing that struck me in the book, maybe more than anything else, was his talking about his family life as he was growing up. And uh, I reread this this morning, and this is powerful. He says, religion was presented to us and our family with a great deal of intellectual freshness. It did not repel us, but kindled our spiritual interest. The talks which we heard were genuine, not the make-believe of religious conversation, but the sincere outcome of their own personalities. That perhaps makes all the difference between talk that attracts and talk that drives away. And he goes on and talks about his family walked, walked four miles every church to Sunday. Now think about that. This is in Scotland. Rain, cold, walked four miles. But he said they loved it. Now, his mom often wasn't able to go because she was ill. Um, John uh, John Patton himself was the oldest of 11 children, so you can imagine in that day uh, the difficulties that she probably had. But he said this, "'Upon our return back home, my father would pace the living room floor, recounting to mother each detail of the sermon and inviting his children to interject.'" I'd love to see some of you go home and do that after this over with you, repeat the sermon and each detail of it. But he invited his children to interject uh, as he was re-preaching the sermon that he heard uh, to his wife. But here's a couple other thoughts. He says, though godly fathers are rare, it should not be surprising that Patton had one. The agency foremost in sending him to the islands of the South Seas was not his church or the missionary society, but the godly home in which he was raised. From here, a loving father set the footings of courage that would support a life of danger. From here, the fervent prayers at mealtimes would shape his longing to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. From here, the undying support of parents sustained him when others were coaxing him to stray. From here, the hushed tones of family worship caused his heart to throb for Christ. And I read that. That's powerful. That should be the deepest desire for every one of us as parents and grandparents not to create people who are are externally conformed, but to to raise children and grandchildren whose hearts throb for Christ. And that's what happened in John Patton's family. Um, One more thought here. When he left to go to the South Seas, I mean, think about that back in the 1800s. I mean, they thought they'd never see him again. His wife dies uh, in a few weeks there, his his young baby. But uh, he goes with his father, and they walk for four hours down to the port where he's going to leave. His father gripped his son. They walked along unsp- almost uh, in unbroken silence. said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you, keep you from evil. After embracing, Patton ran off, ascended a hill, and recounts the memorable parting as he left his father. He says, I watched through blinding tears till His form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as He'd given me. The appearance of my Father when we parted, His advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and the walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life risen vividly before my mind, and do now, so while I am writing as if it had been but an hour ago. And he said he could never forget his youthful longing to follow Jesus and hate sin because this is what his father had desired. Now, I could go on and on reading quotes from this, but it's powerful. And that's what you and I need to be doing in these times in which we live. And I'm not doing this this morning to lay a guilt trip on anybody. Your children may be out of the home, and maybe you wish you had done this before. But for those of you who have children at home, the desire of your life is to to cause your children to have a heart that throbs for Jesus Christ and to live for Him. And I think Daniel's parents did that. And I think that's what enabled him, as enabled John Patton through all the struggles and difficulties and harrowing experiences he went through to stand strong for Christ. A second thing here that I think Daniel leaned on were partners. Daniel drew strength from his friends. They leaned on each other. Daniel leads the charge, but the the, the four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are mentioned four times as a group, three times as a group. Verses 11 and 12, verse 17 and verse 19. We all need people in our corners. We need allies. We need faithful Christian friends. And I just urge you again, as parents and grandparents, it's critical for your children and grandchildren to have Christian friends that they can lean upon who will encourage them and strengthen them in in times of of struggle. Uh, Another thing I think Daniel leaned upon was God's providence. To me, it looks like as you read this passage here that Daniel believed that God would act. Think about this. He just proposed a 10-day trial run. I mean, it's kind of hard for a diet to affect you that much in 10 days. But I think he believed that God would be at work in this, and he exhibits a quiet confidence in the providence of God. He believed that God had his back, and he expected God to act, and he trusted God and expected success. And you and I need that kind of trust in the providence of God to to understand and really believe that God is at work on our behalf behind the scenes. It's so another thing I think helped Daniel make this decision. But finally, the fourth thing I think that helped Daniel was just precept. Daniel knows the Bible. We see he prays three times a day in chapter six. The Word of God had forged and framed his worldview and his convictions. And he knew that it was wrong for him to be totally assimilated into Babylonian life and culture. So he proposes a different diet and he takes his stand. Daniel wasn't afraid to stand up for what was right, but you'll notice as we read that passage earlier that Daniel did it in a respectful manner. Daniel has conviction, but he also has courtesy. And this passage throughout highlights the tact and the wisdom of Daniel. He's not, he's not uh, obnoxious or stubborn, but he's wise and winsome in what he does. And he offers a reasonable request. Now, first he goes to the commander of the officials, and he seems favorably disposed to grant Daniel's request, but he's just too afraid to try to do it. He's just afraid if this doesn't work out, his head's going to roll. So when Ashpenaz, who's the the commander of the officials, refused to change the menu, Daniel doesn't give up, but he approaches the man who's directly over him. He's called in verse 11, the overseer, the, the word there is the melzar. And notice again, Daniel is very diplomatic, and you and I need to be gracious towards people who are in authority, as Daniel was. He recognizes the Melzar's problem, and he he saw the problem from his point of view and proposed something that he believed could be understood and accepted. So Daniel is prepared to be flexible on the details, and he doesn't expect this pagan official to share his convictions but he's gracious and pragmatic, and he proposes a 10-day trial run. And verse 14 says, So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for 10 days. He he says, okay, 10-day test, I can can live with that. Now, I read something this week I'd never thought of or read before, and some believe this steward may have been agreeable to Daniel's request because he could enjoy all the food for himself that Daniel and his friends wouldn't eat. Have you ever thought about that? Probably the best food he'd ever eaten in his life. and That may have kind of tempted him. Well, this isn't such a bad deal after all. I'll take all this food that Daniel and his friends were going to eat, and I'll eat it for myself. Probably the best food he enjoyed in his life. But whatever the reason in his own mind, God was working to give Daniel success and God can do that for you and for me. There's a saying I love, omnipotence has its servants everywhere. God has His servants everywhere. Pagan, Christian, He has them everywhere. Omnipotence has its servants everywhere. And this man, this Melzar, this overseer, becomes one of God's servants in this context. Now, in verses 15 to 20, we come to what I call here the demonstration. Daniel and his friends after 10 days are demonstrably better than all the others. Now, this could certainly just be God's providence. This could actually be a miracle that God makes them look that much better after just 10 days. But the whole point here is that God is the one who's working behind the scenes. And so the overseer continues to withhold the choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Now, down in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. This is the third time in this passage that it says God gave or the Lord gave. Verse 2, Adonai gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Down in verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the officials. Down in verse 17, as for these four youths, and again, it's the God, it's the Elohim, gave them knowledge and intelligence in every brand of of wisdom. So, the undertow of this entire chapter that's explaining Daniel's success is that God is the one who's giving and who's working uh, behind the scenes. Now, the fact that God gave them knowledge and intelligence and wisdom, I don't think means Daniel and his friends didn't study or work hard. I don't think it means they were passive. They worked and they prayed and they studied hard. And for every young person here, I would say work hard and study hard and do your very best in school. Christian students on secular campuses should be among the finest students. And when God helps you and gives you wisdom and gives you understanding, be quick to give Him the glory because it's ultimately His mercy and His grace uh, that will give you success. But the point here is God blessed these young men physically and mentally and spiritually. And the king brings each of them in probably it's some kind of a a personal oral examination where the king himself talks to them about every matter of wisdom and understanding. And he found them ten times better so, there's a focus here on the number 10. There's 10 days, and then there's 10 times better. Daniel and his friends outshined their Babylonian colleagues. They graduated the top of their class. And, and you think about this, in some ways, I think God allowed Daniel and his friends to be deported to Babylon, and part of his reason for that was for them to glorify God in Babylon. In later chapters, Daniel and his friends are going to speak God's revelation and truth into the life of Nebuchadnezzar and other pagan kings. I like the way Dale Ralph Davis says it. This is strong. He says, sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because his mer- He wants His mercy to reach beyond us. It's good, isn't it? Sometimes God allows hardship to reach us because He wants His mercy to reach beyond us. You and I need to look in the times of hardship and struggle we're in in our lives. God may be allowing that hardship to reach us because He wants His mercy to reach beyond us to someone else. And that's exactly what He's doing here. His mercy is reaching beyond Daniel and his friends uh, to these pagan leaders, and we'll see that big time in the next few weeks. Well, the final verse here in verse 21 is what I call the duration. At this point, the author pushes the fast-forward button. Notice these words, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Moves us ahead 66 years. We've gone from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C., the first year of Cyrus the Persian who actually conquers the Babylonians in that year. And Daniel now is in his early 80s, but he's still going. I mean, these are some great words right here, some of the great words in the book of Daniel. And Daniel continued. He kept on. It's been uh, estimated by by different people that over his lifetime, Daniel influenced as many as 13 kings and four different kingdoms. Uh, Eugene Peterson says about the Christian life, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we see in Daniel's life, a long obedience in the same direction. He continues Daniel didn't give up, he didn't give in, and he didn't give out. He finished strong. Daniel continued. He's a man of influence and impact, and he leaves a legacy of commitment behind him. His life literally rippled out for generations. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He says, Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity and uncompromising character had far-reaching results. For when I see the wise men coming from the east... I think of the impact Daniel's theology must have been upon the Chaldeans' astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land. Influence that eventually led the wise men to come to crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. Daniel Daniel was behind the scenes of the history of the Messiah, as well as through the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence. For through the prophecy, his prophecy, he brings homage to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords who reigns forever. Think about that. 600 years later in the time of Jesus, there's still a strain of Daniel's influence there that leads these wise men from Babylon to come and crown Jesus as king. Daniel continued. Now think about this. Daniel was willing to serve God over a lifetime without ever getting what he wanted most, and that was to go home. He never gets to go back home. He lives his whole life in exile. Never saw his parents again. Never knew what happened to them. Probably never knew what happened to his family. Think about that. In the midst of that, he's faithful. He continues. David Jeremiah says this For all of the miraculous works God performed through and for Daniel, it's important to note he never delivered Daniel from Babylon. Daniel lived nearly his entire life as an exile in a foreign land, a hostage in a culture hostile to his faith. The message of Daniel, then, is not that God will remove all forms of oppression in our lives. Instead, this account serves as a promise from God that His people can find success and remain faithful to Him, even in the most trying circumstances. We need that message today. God didn't come and deliver Daniel from Babylon, but He kept him strong in the midst of it. I'll close with this this morning, but there's a story I know I've told this before, but a a preacher named Eric Alexander years ago from Scotland um, was at a a meeting. He was a young man, and and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, Welsh preacher, was there greeting people after a service. He was kind of standing at a distance watching how he was dealing with people, and he said that he shook everyone's hand, and every person when he would shake their hand, he would look them in the eye at the end and say, keep on. Shake their hand and say, keep on. So as as, uh, providence would have it, Eric Alexander rode home that night in the same car in the back seat with Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he asked him, he said, Dr. Jones, he said, I noticed that every person you met as they were leaving, you'd shake their hand, and the last words you would say to them are keep on. Uh, You must think those words are important. And here were Lloyd-Jones' words. He said, he got really animated and said, my dear man, there's nothing more important. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. We must keep on. Those are great words for us in these days in which we live as people are kind of becoming discouraged and despondent with all that's going around, uh, around us in our world. We need to keep on in the face of difficult times, in a culture that is antagonistic to our values. We need to keep on and keep going and stay strong and steady to live out the courage of our convictions so that we can have a life of lasting impact and influence like Daniel. I love those words, and Daniel continued. Well, I want to put our name in there and see is that true, and Bob continued, and Mary continued, and Mark continued, to continue to serve God and to live out the courage of our convictions so that we can have a life of impact and a lasting influence and leave a legacy to those who come behind us. Well, as we bow our heads for prayer, let me just say this. A life like we're talking about here this morning all begins with trusting Jesus. You have to have Jesus as your Savior. If you've never trusted in Him and believed in Him, the one that Daniel speaks of in the future, that's what you need to do this morning. Jesus came and died on the cross for you. He rose again the third day. He bore all of your sin on the cross, and if you'll receive Him, He'll wash away your sins and give you eternal life. So if you've never done that this morning, why don't you do that right now as we pray? Trust in Christ and take him to be your savior from sin. Well, Father, as we live in our own version of the Babylonian culture today, Father, help us to keep on, help us to keep going, help us to continue. To live out the courage of our convictions, Father, as you strengthen us through your grace and through your providence. Lord, help us to be faithful in our day. Help us to take the baton and run our leg of the race faithfully so that we, like Daniel, can leave a lasting impact and have a lasting influence upon uh, this world around us. And Father, as we suffer the hardships of this life and the difficulties, Father, remind us often that sometimes You may allow hardship to reach us because You want Your mercy to reach beyond us. Father, help us to be always ready to tell others the good news about Your Son. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.
5: Let's stand together and sing in closing.
4: Thank you all again for being here with us this morning. Uh, Next week, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 2, one of the great chapters of the Bible, one of the longest chapters in the bible but uh one of my favorites so i'm, I'm looking forward to that for next time if you're uh, visiting with us this morning if you go out these doors a little ways down there's a welcome center uh, there's some folks i'd love to greet you this morning and give you some more information about our church um, i'll be down front after the service our elders who are in the service will be down front as well uh, we'd love the opportunity uh, to meet you this morning maybe pray with you if there's some need that you have uh, we just we just enjoy the fellowship with you this morning. So let's bow our heads for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. Now may the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All God's people said. Amen. All right.